The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down. Meeting this challenge is bigger than any Australian. From how we work and how we live. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Don't travel. To the very basics of human interaction. Keep that social distance. If you're in an enclosed space, you should be wearing a mask. This is a time of total upheaval. It is a test of our nation. If you want this to be over, you've got to follow the rules. For many, 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. And as we look to life beyond the virus, we ask, so now what? Today... Sport. How could it be anything else in this week of twin grand finals? At the start of 2020, things had never looked better. And for the biggest games in town, there was limitless passion and cash. For the AFL, the records just kept tumbling. Membership, crowd attendance, participation rates, all of this hit new heights. Very kind gesture by Dusty to put the dagger in the heart on grand final day. The NRL was coming off a bumper year too, half a billion dollars in revenue, and for the second year in a row, the league posted a surplus. The game's in a good financial position, it's got a good return. And of course, across the board, there's been the surge in women's sport, the AFLW and the NRLW taking off. And who can forget that Women's 2020 World Cup final, where more than 80,000 people packed the MCG. International Women's Day and the women take centre stage here at this vast and historic facility. And then came the virus, and suddenly we were talking about whether or not these games would even survive. Our pandemic expert and our biosecurity expert has said due to the rapid rate of infection that we can no longer guarantee the safety of our players to continue to play. Accordingly, we are suspending the season. The coronavirus crisis has hit home for sporting fans with the Australian Formula One Grand Prix cancelled. The AFL has moved to immediately suspend the 2020 Toyota AFL Premiership season at the conclusion of this weekend's matches. We'll also conclude the NAB AFL women's season as a result of the continuing spread of the COVID-19 virus. As we sit here now, the sports have gotten through, but there have been massive job losses, there have been huge falls in broadcast revenue, and the future still looks really uncertain for this enormous part of Australian culture. So, now what? I need some veteran heavyweights to help me with this and some people who are involved intimately in the way that sport works. So I'm joined by broadcaster Jared Waitley from SEN and also Victoria's head of the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation, but herself also a champion road cyclist and Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. So Jared, if we've got any symptoms, we want to run by Bridie in the course of this conversation. We can. <laughs> it helps establish a pecking order while we, so, <laughs> so we know our place. <laughs> we certainly do. Thanks to both of you for, for joining us to talk about what is an impossibly vast, but I think culturally very consequential topic in Australia. Let's start though with something personal. It's been a really rough year, I think, for sport. Jared, I'll start with you. What have you missed? I've missed going to sport, Waleed, as a fan and as a broadcaster. Uh, I've got a real ache for it during the final series. Probably felt it most acutely in the second week of the finals where it sat in. I think you sort of brace yourself for what it's going to be. And we've been calling games from television in a dark studio since uh, footy was evacuated out of Victoria. But that weekend, we had two finals involving four Victorian teams, which would have would have drawn 190,000 people to the MCG across two nights. And the Cats are through to another prelim final. So 
the Tigers are on their way to Adelaide into a fourth consecutive preliminary final. The champions are still alive. Then to be going into studios and calling footy games that in your heart you just want to be there to experience, to soak in the atmosphere and the consequence which sits so heavily on it and the drama that's intertwined in it. Uh, it's best described as an ache. Are you looking forward to the grand finals this week in the way you normally would? The answer is yes and no. Like these are not normal. This is not a normal final series. And I'll be really interested to see, especially in Melbourne, as as grand as the flow of grand final week is happening, does it feel the same? And it won't. Mm. Just can't. So no, it, it'll be a bit different. Will it be? The question is, will it be less? On Saturday night, it won't be less. But I feel like probably during the week it will be. Yeah. NRL, I think, has the advantage there, doesn't it? It's in its yeah. normal stadium. It's got crowds. It'll, yeah, it's it's in a very good position. Bridie, I've got a feeling you're more of a participant than a, a watcher like Jared and myself, but have you found any aspect of your soul being taken away this year? <laughs> Definitely. I feel soul deprived. You talked about the Cricket World Cup. That was the last big sporting event I went to at the G. Chance. And with that... I went to the Cricket World Cup with my mum, my sister and my two nieces. So that kind of event represented for me this real point in our lives in which I, you know, I haven't hugged any of those people for seven months. I live on my own. I have, I'm totally missing the interaction and the joy and the collegiality that comes with both riding your bike or running with someone or going to park run, but also having just finished commentating the Tour de France not seeing the way people can enmesh themselves in the event to be standing next to someone and exhilaratingly celebrating or commiserating some fallout for an athlete, all the things that we love when we watch, looking over to someone going, did you just see that? You know, And for anyone who may have watched the Tour de France, the, the penultimate night was the most mind-blowing performance by multiple riders. And he's climbed his way to a spot on the podium. Richie, phenomenal, an Australian icon. To have Richie Port right into third and have this young 21-year-old Slovenian win the race. And I was sort of in a weird little dark room just watching it on a screen and yelling at the co-commentators on another screen. That T20 World Cup night, which we were so lucky to get, is I agree with that absolutely. So that was a night my teenage daughters took me to that game. So it was their desire to be there. And their mum, Claire, came with us and we took our son. So that's the first time I think in my family life that I haven't been the driver behind going to a sporting event. Then the next time I went to the MCG, it was empty when Richmond and Carlton played. So across two weeks, the MCG, which I've been to all my life, presented in two ways I could never really have envisaged. The heart of Melbourne, I think, is the MCG and the the sound of Melbourne is the roar that emanates from there. I think it's like so many people have been deprived going to their place of worship during this. They can't go to church or to service. And in the same way, without the same magnitude, but in the same way, we, we haven't been able to go and, and have the, the shared experience that sport is. I have many times gone for walks past the MCG and the most amazing thing has happened. You go there and it's like, it's kind of like visiting the Coliseum where stuff used to happen yeah. there, but now it's been taken over by, by other things. And it's turned into a park. 
people are playing tennis against the wall. You can see <laughs> like people who've drawn chalk outlines of tennis nets and things like that. But my favorite thing was one of the pylons, I think near maybe the Olympic stand. <laughs> I just saw chalk drawings that kids had um, set up their imaginary toy stores. Yes. <laughs> um, it was like, and so suddenly it, it was this playground that had just been taken over by non-sport, you know, in a, in a really profound way. It sort of symbolizes the absence of something, yeah, as well as the emergence of community stuff, but the absence of, of a whole aspect of Australian life. Brody, I love that image you create of the social element of sport. And it's not just, it doesn't even matter where you live. This is happening all over the world, but sport is to be shared and the inability of sharing it says something, I think, more broadly about the inability to share pretty much everything (laughs) through the COVID experience. That observation that you make, I think, is a really powerful one. Yeah, we see also after a rider finishes a stage or wins a stage of the Tour de France, the number of people that would normally descend upon them, the team members or the soigneur, and particularly um, with men's sports that are, are allowing themselves to step out of what's a pretty traditional masculine behavior model, you know, that We see, particularly in cycling, a lot of crying, a lot of men embracing and kissing, a lot of European behaviours that for a lot of Australians don't always feel comfortable. But, you know, someone clutching a very skinny, exhausted young man who's just won a stage of the tour or a woman who's won a stage of a race and bringing them into the fold. It's one of the sports where we know that only one person wins and is on the podium, but it required dozens of people to perform their role. So you don't all get up and get your trophy at the end like a premiership but that rider can't do it without everybody else. And so I think everyone feels invested in riders and invested in the performances overall. So if that's what it means to us, then I suppose we have a really vested interest in the damage that's been done to it via the COVID experience. Damage is maybe not the right word. Maybe what I'm looking for here is what has been revealed about sport? Like if if COVID-19 is an audit, and I feel like it's an audit of so much of life, you know, our political structures, our economic structures, our social connections, and sport is part of that. If it's an audit, what has this audit revealed? Maybe I'll start with an ambit claim and see what both of you think about this. But my feeling is it's revealed the, is Ponzi scheme too strong a word? It's, <laughs> it's, it's revealed. Banana Republic? Maybe, yeah, that sport is in that it's this behemoth that seems to have a lot of money. But it almost doesn't matter how much money you have in the sport, whether you're talking about the AFL, the NRL, smaller sports in Australia, or even mega sports like football across Europe. The minute we had to hit pause, suddenly it seemed like the very existence of these sports was under threat. The business of sport in Australia is in trouble. The AFL has announced that it's cutting 20% of staff because of a $400 million hit to revenue. The NRL is laying off 25% of its staff with revenue there expected to fall $130 million. And Cricket Australia has said you're out to 14% of its staff as it tries to cut 40 million from its costs. And it's like, how how did something with so much money in it seem so vulnerable so easily and so quickly? The most striking aspect so quickly was how fragile sport was and how quickly administrators were to tip their hands on that front. I think the first, in the very first days of it, when Peter Volandis gave voice to the parlous and potentially ruinous state of the NRL, it felt like an over except that it absolutely was the truth. 
If we don't get that revenue from broadcast, we can't pay the costs, we can't pay the players, we can't pay the, the administration, we can't pay any of, the, any of our bills. We're not asking for a handout. What we're saying is include us in the economic stimulus. Mm. You know, rugby league provides you know, billions of dollars to the economy. It lifts the spirits of people around Australia. The one rider I'll add to what you've said is sport, and I can forgive them for this, they never, in all the doomsday scenarios, they never plan for a world in which the game couldn't be staged. There were all sorts of variables that had been war-roomed and the likes. But I don't think if we're really honest, if you'd said to me in February, oh, by the way, there'll be a three-month period where sport around the world will be unable to be played in any form anywhere, I don't think I would have treated that as a rational and likely outcome. So the, the finances and the budgets of sport never took that into account. And the evolution of this is really interesting is it's the rise in player power and the way money that came into the system was distributed. And cricket's probably a, a pretty good example. Is cricket's the most staid and traditional of sports. And you would have thought if, if there was any sport that still had a rainy day fund, it would be cricket. It would be very quaint to have a rainy day fund. But that's not really how modern professional sport works. Every dollar that comes in is demanded to be distributed and the participants want their share quite rightly. And the empowerment that has been on that front has seen that money exponentially grow. So it became more extravagant and definitely more experimental. Money was spent on every front from the core to the search for the most minuscule advantage. And all of that has disappeared. So some of the cuts that sport are facing are just winding back, I think, what you would put in the extravagant category and that clubs and organisations can very much exist in a reduced world because the reduced world is not that long past. I think probably nothing illustrates that better than the, the NRL. The NRL sets up this future fund kind of like the AFL had done, a bit like the country had done. And it aims to put millions of dollars, I think it was like $50 million a year or whatever it was in this fund. And it gets a couple of years in and then it goes, oh, you know what? Let's not. Let's just give that money to the players and the clubs so they can max out what they're earning. And then suddenly the NRL has no reserves on which to draw. So that's not experimental. That's just maxing out the credit card, isn't it? I think it is. And, and to Jared's point around the monetization of it, that's been for the benefit of the very few, though. Let's call out that there'll be some very highly paid male players in some of the top leagues that are benefiting. There's still a very broad base of people who are desperately grasping and hoping for a contract next year. And we can see that model being used across other sports and perhaps even in women's sports in the US, like the WNBA. But I think that there's, there's a very few people benefiting financially from this model, and many of them aren't really may not be sports people at all. They may be the broadcast deal guy that sat around the table and made the deal. I think that what we end up seeing is, you're right, a decimation of how sport was delivered. And then that model may have even been used in a lot of community sport organisations or the state sporting associations that are funded by government. Because for them, they were equally decimated. No one had ever projected forward what would it be like if we weren't running NPL or um, footy over the winter or netball over the winter or even what will we do with field usage between cricket and footy as we're coming out of lockdown. 
I think that this idea that being paid millions and millions of dollars for doing something that not many other people can do has suddenly become put under the microscope, perhaps by more people or understanding the value that they bring and or the trade-off of poor behaviour by highly paid people. I think we need to put a bit more scrutiny there around the behaviours and the broader culture of of organisations that reward greatness and perhaps ignore or enable poor behaviour. So who ends up paying for this then, Jared? I'm just thinking the AFL, you saw quite brutal job cuts across a whole lot of parts of clubs and, and of the industry. Some of it wasn't so much to do with football itself, but some of it was some really quite well thought of assistant coaches, for example, lost their jobs without much of an explanation beyond someone had to lose their jobs. Yep. The NRL has been interesting. They seem to have decided they want to gut middle management, but then at the same time, they have lost some pretty highly paid executives. So I'm just trying to figure out whether or not sport is seeing this as a way of recalibrating what they're doing or trying to preserve the model that they had. And I'm a bit confused about what the impact's been. I think it will be both. So I think the worst spent money was in the empire building. There is this money, so let's spend it. And the size of the AFL, the size of the NRL, the size of Cricket Australia, it, it was unnecessary. And will proven to have been to be so. The AFL, without uh, without terribly much difficulty, was able to shed twenty five percent of its jobs, and the NRL followed suit, and Cricket Australia just on a balance sheet. So I I would argue that the best spent money was on the players, and the worst spent money was on the administration and how I'll, I'll justify that in this way. And I think the Australian women's cricket team, so from the T20 World Cup, are the best example, is cricket invested in its women uh, at a professional level well ahead of its time, well ahead of other sports. And the dividend to that has been to grow a generation that is simply better than the rest of the world who were slow to react and faster than other sports But that cricket model is ahead of time. Cricket took the choice to invest its money heavily in its very specifically its women and the way that they were paid. And I think it's the the gold standard example of what there is in Australian sport. I think it's one of the best in world sport. So that's an example, I think, where that money was really well spent as an investment in the future, but building in layer upon layer upon layer into the hierarchy and the bureaucracy of sporting head offices, that is an example of poorly spent money. You seem like a coiled spring bridey. I've got a feeling you've got a lot to say on this. <laughs> I do. I, I like your example. I also think that in my experiences of being an athlete, that your grasp I was never in a position where I was making a lot of money, but the people I saw who were would grasp for high salaries when that was the only thing they could get. So when there isn't a great sense of belonging, when there's not um, a wonderful team culture where you feel your brothers and sisters or where your administrators look after you, you'll think, you know what, I just want to get make as much money as I can. So I suspect that if we think about what might be better, and I know we're not in the better part of the future yet, but let's be better human beings in how we deliver professional sport and think about how mindful we can be about looking after and having hard conversations with administrators and with athletes about what we expect of them and also paying them well, but not just thinking, I'll just throw money at this problem so we can fix this guy or this girl's behaviour or this administrator's bad management. 
So I get that concept, but is that a feasible thing in the context of a competition, which sport inherently is? Because you might be able to say, we, we want to reform some of these cultural elements and maybe some of the player demands will back off, which might make the whole thing a little bit more financially sustainable. I, like, yes, okay. But bottom line, if club A has the same as club B, but more money, then I'm more likely to go there, which then creates the context of a bidding war. So you get this market competition that sits behind the on-field competition. And so I wonder whether or not this is something that can ever be solved, except by head office sort of saying, nope, sorry, we're not raising the salary cap, or you just can't keep paying your players more and having to stand up to those sort of demands. But I wonder if country football or VFL gets to be that test case for that. You know, if there's no money in VFL anymore and we can't keep paying retired players to rock up to a game randomly at Benalla or Mildura once a week and pay him 10K because the club can't afford it. If no bloke is getting paid for club footy and that club can spend its money on other things, growing girls and boys teams and um, having a better environment for families, then there'll be models where people go, okay, you don't just do stuff for cash anymore. And I know that that's a really hard thing to say when we know a lot of people have become unemployed during COVID-19 and a lot of athletes have been struggling. So I I get that that's a trade-off and I'm I'm not in charge of the world, so I don't get to make all the decisions. But I also think that we do need greater accountability of people who are CEOs of sporting organisations or chairs so that they're not enabling these decisions to be made over the last five to ten years. Jared, you mentioned women's competitions. Fair to say, I think we should observe that we're talking about vastly, really diverse terrain here. The, the, yeah. the women's cricketers is a very mature women's game, at least in Australia. But I think we can say that's happening around the world now. You saw that with the emergence of India, for example, in the, the recent Women's 2020 World Cup. The AFLW, I would describe as overwhelmingly marketing driven in that it's not an elite competition in the sense that a lot of the players that play for it are not footballers. They're elite athletes who've come into football, but they're not, it's not nothing like the Australian women's cricket setup, for example. And the NRLW is like a very different setup again, where it's much smaller. You really need to be a rugby league player in order to be in that competition. They're not recruiting laterally, but there's only four teams as a result. And it's kind of like a mini tournament. Very different models, different states of maturation, different philosophies that underlie them, yet they have to deal with the same pandemic. Bridie, what's the impact, you think, on those women's sports as a result? Well, let's use a great example of Charlotte Kaslick, who we know has been an outstanding member of the rugby women's sevens team and a gold medalist from the Rio Olympics. With Tokyo being delayed, she made a call to switch codes and play in NRLW and played in the Roosters. I think it played her first game two weeks ago and was just scintillating. She needs a bit of help here, don't she? She's going to try and go all the way on her own. Charlotte Kaslick with a handoff attempt and kicking clear. What about that for a solo try? Didn't need anybody else. What that's done is elevate the game of NRLW by having some star players, some really amazing athletes in that team. But you're absolutely right about we call it a sub-elite competition. If you've got to have a part-time job to subsidise any salary you may be getting, if you're getting one at all, then it's not elite or professional by the definition of the word. And maybe you're also the primary carer of a kid and you're taking that kid to training sessions and you're juggling all those things. You can't be like an elite cricket player and have someone else think about the mental load. So the impact that that has on athletes is really substantial if you're worrying about money. But also if you're worrying about injury and who's going to manage that, if you've got a day job, you don't want to actually be showing up with concussion or fractured collarbones and things that can happen from sport. So it means that you play or compete in a different way when you're sub-elite. 
there's a lot of touch football players in Queensland and New South Wales who've transitioned across to NRLW, but you've got four teams. It's like the Women's Super W. Where do you go? Uh, and the score lines have reflected that in some of the Women's Super W teams. There'll be 100 to three result, you know, and that's that just shows you this disparity in ability or investment into those women's rugby teams. Jared, what happens to these women's competitions, do you think? Uh, I think we'll be able to judge each sport on whether they started their women's competitions and funded their women's competition with excess money or with or as a priority. So I'm a little more forgiving on the AFLW front than you are, Waleed. I think it was slow in happening and then it was fast to happen. I actually don't think it was grounded in marketing. I think it was it was a long time coming to actually provide elite women's football or the opportunity of it. And it needs, it's going to take that generation, I think, to bed down. But I think it it landed as a community movement. So I think the AFL started it and then was rushing to put the tracks down in front of the rolling train, not really knowing where it was going, but such was the community response to it is they had something more than they believed. And I think there, there are numerous moments where the AFL weren't sure whether they believed in it absolutely or not, only to have it reinforced by these extraordinary crowds that would come out and go, no, this actually is something real. But, but doesn't that underscore the marketing aspect of it? It might, but I don't think people didn't go because the AFL marketed oh, it. Oh, no, no, them. I'm not suggesting, yeah. They went because this was an idea that was a long time coming. No, no, I totally accept that. I, I just mean the the way the league has come about. You're absolutely right. There's been a long push for a long talk to Sam Austin about it. She'll give you the, yeah, the yeah. full story. So I'm not I'm not denying that, but the the way that it just springs into action out of nothing. Uh, well, not out of nothing, but you know, out of nowhere as far as if you were watching the AFL administration, suddenly there it is and it's vast and there's people from all over the place coming to it. I feel like it's more the way that it was delivered that clearly had an eye to the, the marketing dimension of it rather than it being done in the organic way that could have been done. You know what I mean? I think we'd reached a moment where I would have said to you in December last year, the best spend of AFL money and a really big chunk of AFL money, not a million dollars here or there, but a full-on whack of money would have been AFLW because of what it would have delivered them in five to 10 years' time. And all they have to do is go and study the cricket model where the investment was made well ahead of time and well ahead of the push and the opinion and see what it grew into. And I think that that's clearly, I'm not sure that was in the AFL's thinking and I'm absolutely certain that it wouldn't be now. So is it going to just be tended to continue to when it actually needed a propulsion to become all that it might be? For the, so the girls who are, what would you say, between 5 and 12 have been invited in. This is what this is going to look like by the time you're old enough. Well, it better be that because that was the covenant that you entered into by opening it. And the only way to get that is through a serious investment of money. And I don't think that will be the priority. And I think that will be a tremendous pity because we might have got there and I don't think we'll get there in the way that we were going to. I'm equally worried about football as a sport. You know, we've got the Women's World Cup now between Australia and New Zealand as host cities for 2023, which is wonderful. And that a lot of work was gone, had gone into that. But how are we really looking after a pathway for girls and boys playing football in this country when we've seen some disorganisation or some even challenging behaviours by senior administrators in Football Federation Australia and, and of course, in FIFA and not always transparency around where investments are made and by whom? 
And I, I really like that that approach Jared's talking about, which is sort of, you know, you have to show them that this is what it could be. This is how you could have a career. And if anything, if, if the pandemic's done anything positive, I think it may have even narrowed the gap in terms of what we're exposed to or what the obligations of an athlete are or what, how they might have to hustle to get what they need. No longer can you be some highly paid or overpaid male player sitting back in your mansion in Brighton waiting for the agents to come to you with great deals for footballs and you know boots and ads while a woman is working part-time and scrapping away. I think what we're seeing is a levelling. So let's have more women in decision-making in sport so that we don't make as many stuff-ups. We don't have as many ball-tampering issues. We don't have as many major flaws in our decision-making. And we think, and we have people like Jared around the table go, hang on, well, how are we investing in the women's team? What do they need to get up to the point that the men are at? Don't just keep sh- shoving them the same dollar per hour rhetoric around equality. Mm. Jared, you've just been appointed to a board. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> it's a frightening prospect. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the major codes just for a second. The, the AFL and the NRL, I mean by that. Who's had the better year? Those days of the evacuation of Victoria by the AFL, its teams, and sort of the last flights out, they were, those days will live with me for a long time. And maybe in hindsight, we'll look back and go, do you remember the year where on that Monday, the 10 Victorian teams had to hit the airport and get the hell out before the borders changed? Winter in Melbourne without any AFL matches. AFL clubs will fly out of Victoria today as players set up camp at interstate hubs. They're heading to hubs in Queensland and New South Wales for an unprecedented five-week stint. I was sent away for 32 days and ended up being away for 110 days. And there was a whole round played in New South Wales and Queensland. Not a single game in Victoria after June. So I think the AFL has had the bigger challenges to get the season away. I think the New South Wales government and the NRL were really tight and really aggressive, where I admire I admire Peter Volandis for getting sport restarted. Look, it's been a very challenging time, no doubt about that, but, you know, we have to focus on our players and our fans and get the, the game back as quickly as possible. There's one in 10,000 chance that you could die from a car accident. A player, if there's one in 10 million chances that he will die from the coronavirus. If I hadn't the time again, I wouldn't have stopped the game. I don't think we were any risk playing on. You say sport, which I think is interesting. Yeah. So you don't mean just the NRL, you mean... No, no. I would say to you at the time when the NRL, when Peter Volandi was was saying we're going to restart sport, the AFL was just going, we just need to sit here quietly and wait till... And, and if it takes us till December to get our game played. So uh, there's no way sport resumes when it did without the the aggressive approach of the NRL, and I think they did that in concert with New South Wales government. Now, there are debates around um, the morals and the ethics in that. I'll shunt those to the side for a moment and just go, there wasn't a sports administrator in the world who was prepared to stare down the pandemic like Volandis was. He started the sport well ahead of what anybody thought was going to be reasonable, and the AFL played catch-up while other sports stumbled around and cricket being primary to that is that style of leadership, whatever that was, didn't work at all as bringing catastrophe on themselves. Uh, And rugby union was in a terrible state. 
so that was sort of unsurvivable, I think, for the CEO of the time. So it's been interesting. So different years, AFL definitely more complicated to land the NRL-led sport potentially across the world, not just in Australia. Yeah, you feel like if the NRL didn't have such a bad season in Queensland, i.e. if the Queensland teams weren't so terrible, yeah, it might have been a really golden year. They've kind of ended up in this weird situation because of the Victorian wave pushing the AFL into Queensland. They've ceded ground through no fault of their own. Can I just go back to the image of Peter Vlandy staring down the pandemic, which I find offensive in many ways and lacking in any public health. I'm worried Peter's not done his homework on biology and virology, but I think that that has been used by, we saw it being used by the ASO when France was riddled with coronavirus cases in March when international cycling was put on pause. He said nothing will stop the Tour de France. You know, only a world war has done so in, in the 40s. So what I guess it's um, we come back a bit to the behaviours of leaders in that do you keep up this facade, the hubris, God damn it, this is the NRL or this is the Tour de France and we will not, we'll stop for no one. And by the way, all of my athletes are disposable. So what, some of them will get coronavirus or some of their partners will violate bubbles and go and, you know, get beautician appointments and that'll be a bummer and we'll pay the fines. So I think that we would see different styles depending on different sports. And here we are now in the halfway through the Giro d'Italia, the Tour of Italy, we've had three major teams pull out. We're seeing terrible anecdotal reports of teams and locals mixing in hotels, which is not part of the bubble. And the Italian race organisers approaching very differently from the French ones. Basically, we don't care about the community and what the rates are. All we want is the show has to go on. So we talk about athletes having power. I don't think they have as much power as anyone really believes. Yeah, so I think that's really good observation. But you've got to factor in, don't you? It also reflects the broader cultural and political attitudes in those respective parts of the world. I mean, the fact that that stuff you describe is going on in Europe, I mean, in cycling as in football over there. Well, yeah, but that's kind of the way the governments are, are responding. And that's kind of the, that's the way the people are responding. Absolutely. And the president of America's, he fixed COVID, he had it, and he's all better now. Yeah. Right. Whereas in Australia, one person gets COVID and, like, that's it, cancel the game. And, you know, then the AFL did suspend a game as a result <laughs> of one positive test. And I'm not saying that was a bad decision, but these kind of reflect just cultural and political dispositions on this, don't they? I'm, I'm aghast with what's happening in Europe at the moment. It was interesting, the two Grand Slam tennis tournaments, it was really carefully plotted in America. And they did as well as you could do, I think, in the circumstances with the US Open. And I'll stand by, the French Open was the most miserable sporting event of the year. It was staged at exactly the wrong moment where they were going to have crowds just days out and then they got wiped by the infection rate. It was cold and it was dank. And it was completely out of place with what was happening in France at the time that this sporting event was taking place. So it was as off-pitch as there has been this year. And then to the States, as the NBA did a great job. The NBA has been one of the most successful social experiments of the pandemic, putting all players and coaches in a bubble in Orlando with no fans to resume the season. They did set up the bubble, the airtight bubble, which felt like a fiction, but they were able to pull it off. They were able to present a television product and then it became a deeper, like having the NBA going through the cultural episodes that took place in the United States has moved those NBA players through into a whole different sphere. I think LeBron James is the most influential athlete in the world and he's one of the most influential since Muhammad Ali as a result of all of that. A lot of people kind of use this analogy about Black Lives Matter as a movement. It's not a, it's not a movement. When you're black, it's not a movement. It's, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> 
we, we sit here and say it's a movement and okay how long is this movement gonna last don't stop the movement no this is a walk of life when you wake up and you black you that is what it is and yet the nfl is just running the risk oh well if we get players infected we'll postpone games and and cross our fingers and hope for the best so sport has looked callous in certain moments sport has looked really calculated in certain moments and i think I think Australia actually should be really proud with the differing attitude and how that's been reflected in sport. But I think as a an international conversation, the NBA ended up the most discussed sporting league in the world this year. The WNBA players striked in the middle of games, walked off court, had Breonna Taylor written on the back mm. of their jersey. We are dedicating this season to Breonna Taylor an outstanding EMT who was murdered over 130 days ago in her home. We are also dedicating this season to Say Her Name campaign. I think you're right, Jared. It actually elevated the voices around Black Lives Matters yeah, yeah. and the athletes and their value to the fans and spectators. And that, I'm sure, would have divided, divides down political lines in the United States and around ideological opinion about there's no politics in sport, which I love it when people say that to me. They obviously don't do either, but, uh, you know, I think that we've seen, you're right about the calculating and and callous. I think we've also seen care, a great deal of care being extended by athletes to the broader community. We've we've heard from voices like Kyrgios, who's maturing into a, a volatile but lovable young man. And we've seen decisions being made by Barty to not attend those events, thinking, well, if I can't get my coach to come to me in Queensland and I, I'm going to have to quarantine on the way home, this is my decision. And then we see Alcott go over and try his luck at the US and then win the French and has to come back home and quarantine for two weeks in Sydney. We're seeing the real lives now of some of these athletes. And I think we're better for it. The audience and the fans are better for it. Ash Barty really just wanted a chance to finally see Richmond play in the finals. Yep. That's what that was really about, <laughs> I think. I'm very conscious of the fact that we talk about this as though, wow, 2020 has been a big year and sports had to deal with a pandemic and it's gotten through it and, you know, in various forms of disrepair, but there it is. I mean, this is far from over, isn't it? Mm. There's no real guarantee 2021 sporting seasons look much different to 2020. Are the changes that sport has tried to make to deal with this sustainable for the length of time that it might need to be in order to get through this pandemic? I could fold the question back and go, how long will we be wearing masks for in Victoria? Like, I don't think sport has any idea what it's going to look like next year or in the next season. I think everyone is making plans and you have to make plans, but like a tennis players from Europe going to be allowed into the country in January. And if they do, are they going to do the two weeks quarantine? Are the Formula One teams of the world going to come and do two weeks quarantine in March? Are they going to be allowed in if they choose to? And then you boil it down to when's the next time we'll be able to go to the MCG in any sort of numbers? Is that going to be Boxing Day? Really? I don't know, Bridie, you tell me. It's probably your department, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not disclosing anything on that. But I, I think the other unknown is we don't know what the impact of coronavirus is on athletes yet. You know, I've, I've heard from some athletes who've had it internationally and in Australia that they are taking a really long time to get back to their capable um, energy, muscle, strength, power, acceleration. We know there was an outbreak in the NBL here in Melbourne United. We know that season's been delayed. I wonder what the impact will be on those United players in terms of is their health and well-being as an elite professional athlete really ever going to come back to that form and fitness? Yeah, that's a frightening thought because, well, half the Premier League has it and 
the way it gets reported over there, I know this because I follow the sport pretty closely, it gets reported like an injury, it's like a hamstring. There were three positive test results that came back, um, being the manager and, and obviously the two players, Issa and, uh, and Josh. Immediately at that point, you're thinking, well, we've got a game uh, in, in an hour and 10 minutes, so we, we better focus on that. So, oh, he's, got, he's out with COVID, he'll be back in a couple of weeks, and that's, that's kind of that. <laughs> it's a vascular disease. It's, it affects blood vessels, not, not just a pneumonia. So the reason people are, are dying is because they have existing diseases like diabetes and heart disease. It's because the blood vessels have been really seriously impacted. But we haven't even been, let, let's get a little bit morbid, but there hasn't even been an ability by major countries with huge devastating losses of life mm. to do autopsies on all of these people, to actually determine the impact. And for some athletes, they're asymptomatic for longer or, they're, or they don't even get tested in the first place. So we don't know how many people have had low viral load and how that might have impacted them over time as well. So I think in 12 months, you talk about impact, we might see a whole different cohort of people performing in those teams. The sport and the league might change the performances, the speed, average speeds of tours, the number of points scored in games may change. I think the finances, well, all the changes that have been made so far have been to get through this year. If next year was substantially and profoundly affected, you would have to have another recalibration. And the AFL is the best example because of the membership model with clubs as people treated their 2020 subscriptions as a donation. So few people sought their money back. They had every right to. No one was really interested. That's not how we, it's not a transaction. It's a completely different thing if next year they go, we don't know whether we're going to be able to let you into the footy or not. Would you like to buy a membership? So it's different. We'd already all bought our memberships. No one was asking for it back. Mm. The financial equation next year is, oh, we don't know whether we can let you come to the footy. Will you buy our membership? That's way different. And that's, that's the whole financial model inside the AFL separate to the TV rights. I think what you say, though, about the membership model is really interesting when you look at the NRL, because the NRL doesn't really work that way. But a perverse thing has happened in the NRL, really, where the clubs that are financially strongest because they generate their own revenue are the ones that have been really hit hardest mm. by the pandemic. Like if you're the Brisbane Broncos or whatever, and you're constantly filling Suncorp Stadium and suddenly you can't, well, that really takes a hit. Although arguably the Broncos may not have filled it at all this season the way they play. <laughs> but... If you're one of the other clubs that's a bit smaller, maybe has a pokies venue attached, but otherwise relies on money from the NRL, your income stream actually turned out to be quite solid. <laughs> and I, I don't know how that comes out in the wash, like whether or not it means that the things that make the NRL clubs precarious end up making them survive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what if all pokey and gaming venues are closed because social distancing doesn't permit them to do that and you can't get all the revenue from those clubs into Canterbury and, you know, plenty of the teams that derive their income from that, that changes everything for them as well. No big salaries anymore, shorter contracts, different players. And well, this is, and this is the strange thing because in the NRL, you've got Peter Volandis earlier in the year saying guaranteeing the salary cap won't change. Yeah. And now it seems oh, it might change a bit. And, and so you're starting and in the AFL, you've got clubs trying to plan and coming up with contracts with players when they don't know what the salary cap's going to even be and how big the list size is going to be. It's a mess. What does sport look like on the other side of this? It won't be the same for all sports. So I think the, the tiers in sports will separate. So we had got to a two-tier model, I think, where 
notionally could have gone AFL, NRL and cricket, which were separating from A-League, Super Rugby and the like. I I think that will become a chasm. So I still expect the AFL and the NRL to be really powerful with more money than the rest. I don't think the professionalism of it will change as clubs will be smaller. I'm not sure that the player numbers will change that much. It will be negligible. It'll be a couple a year over a couple of years. So I don't think you will notice that in the competition. The programs will be less refined, but in less refined, what do you get on the field? So the expressionism of football, which I think has been in decline for the past, what would you say, decade and a half, as the coaching has altered the game immeasurably, if that level of coaching is not there, does it lead to a greater level of expressionism as was there in the past? If, a, if the size of a football club is going to be half what it was, it won't operate in the same way that it did. And I think the existential question is what does that give us on the field in the way the game is played? And that's unknowable. Right, you, I think, watch sports that I don't, and, I, and Jared may also not watch as much as you. Are there things that you're seeing that, give you a suggestion as to what the future of those sports looks like? I think there's an opportunity for not bouncing back, but bouncing forward into delivering their sport in a new way. But I think there'll be initially a really awful impact on the women's side of leagues. Let's use AFLW or um, W League as an example. They'll be adversely impacted relative to the men's side of their league. Whereas you might see WNBL and NBL, actually, they're both struggling. They both need audiences to be in those stadia to bring in revenue. But that said, basketballers have always always been extraordinary in Australia and they've been paid very little. Their WNBL minimum wage is appalling. And yet we get medals at the Olympics every four years. So our program and high performance remains good. And maybe this overreach that we've seen in the past might be railed back into some sort of a bit more of a real world approach, which is, do we need 40 on a list of an AFL team or can we do with 30? Or do we need to monitor every single step with GPS data of every single player all the time? Or can we start asking those players to be a bit more mature and start looking at their instincts? And I think that's what you mean by the expressionism of the game. Let's Let's not make everything so sciencey. Let's actually ask the players to do the things that we love about them. We need to go back to all of the people who have lost their jobs, people who are working in all of these organisations that were adding value in many ways, having Sons of the West and having the um, organisations that are associated with it. They don't have those people to deliver programs that go to community. They're not delivering for broader support of the community. What does that mean generally? If you're sacking all the people who are about diversity, inclusion, participation, growth, and we've seen that happen with Cricket Victoria, a lot of people that went were all about let's grow the game in regional Victoria or let's look at diversity and inclusion officers or girls' participation officers. If you don't have those people anymore, you're turning off the tap. And in another generation, we won't have the best cricketers in the world. Jared, is that what's happening? I think that's still revealing itself. And again, I think we'll be able to judge organisations as to what they regarded as core and what they regarded as their priority. And was the was the um, either the cultural or the community side of it leveraged to get government funding at federal and state level, and was as was clever politics and thus clever business? Or once you've headed down this path and actually connected your club to something a little bit deeper, do you truly value that? And are you prepared to prioritise that ahead of? a couple of people in the football department. Just one more thing before I get you to uh, give us your watching brief. 
What about the fans in this? What's the future of sports fandom? Has, has it been irrevocably changed through this experience? Uh, are we just more and more desperate? So actually it's going to be fever pitch on the other side. Have we learned to live without sport? Does the emperor now have no clothes and sports in massive trouble because we've all discovered gardening and Netflix? Like what, what do you think happens as far as the, the fan relation to sport and its position as a cultural phenomenon goes? Bridie, I'll start with you. I think yes to all of your questions. There's definitely ups and downs uh, or pros and cons to how we've seen a loss of being able to go engage physically. There's definitely a lot more engagement on social media. That brings with it burdens and blessings for players and for sport administration. Look at what happened with uh, Nike not making Matilda's jerseys in women's sizes. The world spoke pretty quickly and they responded reasonably quickly in remedying that problem. So I think that, that there'll be a greater push for how do we engage with people and athletes. When will they have trust again to go to a, an event? Do they want to wear a mask and sit two metres away from someone? I wonder that there will be a slow return to what people want. You know, if you've got a disability or a chronic disease, do you want to go to the G when you're worried about risk? It'll take some time for us all to revisit. I mean, I still, if I watch TV and I see people hug, I go, ooh, why are they doing that? And when can I get some? So I think Melbourne, I don't want to overstate it, but I think a lot of people in Melbourne have got a bit of whiplash or even a bit of PTSD about the last six months. And we might take some time. We might all flood back in the gates when we can. And then there could be a bit of a pause and reset. Right. We should acknowledge, of course, nothing like that in WA, nothing like that in Queensland, it seems. I mean, Queensland and the NRL were filling up stadiums in all kinds of promiscuous ways well ahead of time. And the Melbourne Storm, I think, got quite worried about it with their new base in the Sunshine Coast. So this isn't going to be a uniform experience. And it does raise questions of what does a crowd sound like when they're all wearing masks? I've got no idea (laughs) what sort of atmosphere that creates. Um, Jared, what do you think the future is for fandom? Do you think if the MCG opened on Saturday and they put a game on for us. Do you think 100,000 people would go? Let's say they recast, just imagine for me. Let's recast the preliminary finals. The preliminary final is Richmond and Geelong. On Saturday night, the government suddenly goes, you can play the game at the MCG and you can go if you want to. Do you think 100,000 people would go? No, I'll be there, but I reckon a lot won't. So my, my gut feeling is yes. Really? So three months ago, yeah. Three months ago, if you asked me this question, I think I would have had a, a much more nuanced and I might have searched for something that I'm just not sure is there. I doubt anything changes in our relationship to sport other than there is an intensity in the absence at the moment, but it's an absence that's only been felt in one state. The caustic nature, which had been developing across the past five or six years, is as intense as it ever was. Probably gotten worse in lockdown, hasn't it? Um, I don't know whether it's gotten worse because I think this was the path we were on anyway. I'm just thinking of those players who are getting death threats on social media and that yeah. I've spoken to one or two of them and they were sort of saying, well, I think a lot of us to do with gambling. Yes, yeah. Uh, exacerbated by lockdown. And- oh, I don't think that owes to lockdown. I think the, the prevalence of gambling has been rapidly growing season on season and would have been as it is regardless. Right. There's part of me that wishes something had changed. And I think one of the great questions coming into the restart was would we judge the way we typically judge? And the answer overwhelmingly has been yes. There has been no, oh, the poor devils are over here and that's it. There's been nothing of that. It has been analysed in exactly the same way as if the season had been played in normal circumstances. So I I think hopefully, my, my one hope in this conversation is that sporting administrations realise how important their fans are 
and that it was, it's so less of a spectacle without them. But if you honestly said to me, do you think sporting organisations will take their fans less for granted next year than they did this year? I would probably say to you now, no. I think they'll treat them exactly as they did previously because they know they're gagging for it. All right, let's do the watching brief, shall we? What's your watch this space, Bridie? I want to see and I hope, I think we will see different decisions being made by who should lead sport. I think historically we've chosen people who've been former players, former champions, people who know how to talk a talk. And I think we're going to see business people appointed to some of those roles who either can sell a flashy pitch on how they're going to redeem the sport and get them out of a quagmire, or we're going to see great leaders leading sport because a lot of people have become unemployed. And so I think the face of leadership in sport, whether they might be the captain or the CEO or the president, is going to change. And I think it will change for the better. Jared, what are you watching? Uh, I'll give you two. If the if the Olympics do go ahead as scheduled next year, and that's a big if, I think the sense of nationalism will be magnified. I think any Australian who stands at the top of the dais in Tokyo and wins a gold medal, it'll be profoundly more impactful than it would have been in the before times. I think that the sight of national teams playing in the short term will be really good for us. And the second one is in the AFL is I'm fascinated to see if there is going to be an active move to rationalise the competition from 18 teams. So we now have twice had presidents who served on the war cabinet give public voice to Jeff Kennett first saying there should be financial thresholds put in place and if you don't meet them, you get demoted and demoted means expelled. And that would, if that had been accepted as policy, it would have led to the death of more than one club in whatever prescribed time frame there is. And then more benignly, the idea has been put forward by the Sydney chairman for an independent review of the AFL structure. It's been 27 years since that's happened. To set up for the next 20 years, there should be an independent review. And I think any independent review would come with a recommendation that the structure of 18 teams as they are now, is not the ideal because it is, it's a historic hangover. So I hope that it doesn't happen, but that's my watch, is will there actually be a move to rationalise the 18 teams? I wonder what that looks like in the NRL as well. I should point out the war cabinet that Jared refers to has to do with a cabinet that the AFL put together to get through COVID. The AFL has not taken over foreign policy, at least not yet. Although that is well and truly on the cards. Peter Blandes has that. <laughs> yeah, he may well have. He may well have. We're in overtime, which means I have to pay you double what I have so far. So I bet. <laughs> Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Wally. Thank you.